0: 1 Thessalonians will be our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 4, we also have another guest with us today, uh, one of our members still, but who represents us in Pakistan, so Wesley Davey is somewhere with us over here, I saw him just a little while ago, my heart leaped for joy when I saw him. Uh, he's coming off of one semester of ministry there. He's gonna be here for the summer, and he's gonna regroup and then head on back over for the fall uh, so we get him for a few weeks or months here. And next Sunday night, we're having a special service that you will not want to miss. Um, I know this is the fifth Sunday, and typically we do mission emphasis on the fifth Sunday, uh, but we're gonna push it to next Sunday, because next Sunday night, we're gonna have a commissioning service for Wesley. Uh, just with how quickly he went and our church voting to approve him, uh, there wasn't really a lot of time to commission. So we're going to do that and uh, rejoice in what God is doing and calling out one of our own body to go serve on the mission field. So you won't want to miss uh, next Sunday night as we look forward to that. Well, as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians uh, in the last few weeks, uh, we have noticed uh, that God's call on believers involves more than just early conversion or just simple faith in Jesus Christ. But God expects believers to live in very practical ways for the glory of God. As we study 1 Thessalonians, we say chapters 1 through 3 were primarily about the past, and Paul rejoices in everything God did in saving them and then leading them to initially be faithful in the midst of opposition from Satan. However, when you get to chapter 4, Paul imagines a bright future for this church as well. An exciting future where they would demonstrate behavior that is worthy of God and the gospel that saved them. As we get into chapters 4 and 5, I think there are six significant areas that he's going to emphasize. And we've looked at some of these. I think it's important to remind us that Paul's not just like randomly picking different areas. Of course, the Holy Spirit is leading him in the process. But I think Paul's also responding to a report that he received from Timothy about some issues, some problems, some sinful patterns in the church. And so in verses 1 through 8, we looked at in chapter 4, we noticed the first sinful pattern or habit that they need to break was some within the church were defrauding other believers of their spouse. They were being immoral. They were not holy. And so Paul reminds them, you must You must not do that, but you must live in ways that reflect the change that was worked in your conversion. And then a few weeks ago, we looked at verses 9 through 12, and there the second topic was that they must commit themselves to brotherly love and not sponge off of each other. Remember that? Uh, It's been a while. But they, they must work hard with their own hands, demonstrating brotherly love toward one another. Well, when we get to... Chapter four, verses 13 through 18, we get to another subject or topic that Paul considers. And it it appears that this is uh, the presenting problem for the whole book. If you remember when we first started the series, I said that I think that the biggest problem that Paul's addressing in the church is that although they had faith and love that was continuing and growing, their hope was waning their hope was waning, maybe because of the suffering and the opposition. And so today, we go into a text where we can see that very clearly. So we'll look and see how was their hope waning in the return of Christ in in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now before we get into these verses, uh, let me just give an illustration, I think, that will uh, hopefully capture the point of this text. Uh, Before living in Virginia Beach, uh, our family spent 15 years in the the Midwest, the upper Midwest, in Wisconsin and Minnesota. While living in that area, I somehow avoided going ice fishing, except on one occasion at a church men's event. I was guilted into it. I did not want to do it. I thought the whole idea was crazy, had no desire for it. The whole day started out terribly. Remember, I drove my Suburban... To the lake, but I chickened out right before the front tires were to go on the lake. Something about the concept of driving this heavy SUV onto a lake did not seem right to me. So I went home and I, I really committed a tragic mistake. I went home and I got our car. We had a little car at the time, a cheap little car, it was a PT Cruiser. My children called it a PT Loser. Uh, but uh, if you have one, I apologize. Uh, So I I went and got the PT Cruiser, and I actually started out onto the lake, and uh, this car was terrible in the snow. Um, My mistakes continued until uh, finally I got stuck in the snow, in a snowbank in the middle of this lake, middle of nowhere. And then I didn't want anyone else to know about it. You know, I was just proud about that. Well, somehow the leader of the trip found out, and he called me, and he told me that two other men in SUVs were stuck on the lake as well. It made me feel a little bit better. I helped people, uh, tried to help others off, those two men, they helped me, finally got my car parked uh, off the side of the lake, and I found uh, that in the center of this lake is where our group was, and there was this little shanty that I was supposed to get to. And so by this time, I mean, it was extremely cold, I was fatigued, and I just started walking across the lake, put my head down, have you ever been cold like this before, and just walking, and thought, the whole way, along the way, I would occasionally look up and see that little shanty, and just imagine the warmth of that shanty. It kept me going. In life, sometimes when we face difficult issues, one object or thought or promise compels us to keep going. Well, Paul draws the reader in this text, I think, to the greatest, most profound object of hope ever available to people. It is the return of Jesus Christ. I want to look at this passage with you today, and I want to consider uh, what this text meant for Paul and his original readers, the Thessalonians, and then apply it to our lives and ask how we can live better because of it. This text starts out in verse 13 with an opening declaration. I've got three points today. An opening declaration is number one. Look with me at verse 13 says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Here we learned, uh, I, I think we learned even before this, early in the epistle, that the very nature of the Thessalonian conversion was that they were longing for the Lord Jesus to come back. In verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, and to wait for his Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonians were saved to this. They were looking forward to Jesus returning at any moment. Yet what seems to have happened is that since they were converted just a few years before, some of the brothers and sisters in the assemblies of Thessalonica had died, had fallen asleep so that other believers who were remaining were overwhelmingly sorrowful about their loss. In verse 13, I want you to notice just a few things about the text. First, I want you to know that how Paul describes those who have died in Christ. He says, those who are asleep. It's a very fitting word. It's a metaphor, I think, and it just tells us or reminds us that one day they're going to stir and they're going to arise and wake. It's It's a fitting metaphor. Unfortunately, some people come to this text and think that what this means is that when someone dies in Jesus Christ, they enter into like a soul sleep where they're just unconscious for a while, waiting for Jesus to return so they can be awake and then enjoy him. But that is not at all what the scriptures teach. The scriptures say, for to be absent from the body is what? Present "Present with the Lord. Okay, We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a little bit. But you will not go unconscious and sleep in a grave waiting for Jesus to do something. When you die in Jesus Christ, you will instantaneously be in his presence, enjoying him forevermore. Now, second, notice that Paul is not forbidding grieving over the death of loved ones. Tears at the funeral or death of a spouse or loved one are not wrong. Tears are often a sign not of weakness faith, but a sign of deep, great love. I think of what Paul said in the letter to the Philippians when he considered the potential death of Epaphroditus. He said God spared him, and that is a great thing, because if he would have died, we would have sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul's not forbidding mourning the death of a loved one. Instead, Paul says, we must not grieve like those who are hopeless. certain type of grief we shouldn't engage in, like those who are hopeless. And for that to be the case, we need to know something, I think Paul's saying. As a matter of fact, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant about something. That could be translated literally. I do not want you not to know something. And that something is found in verses 14 through 17. So you got this opening declaration. Do not grieve like those who have no hope. And Paul follows that with number two, settling affirmations. In other words, in verses 14 through 17, what Paul is doing in your Bible is he's saying something like this. There are good reasons for you not to grieve like like a hopeless person. In fact, if you've got an English Bible, if you've got the ESV, it's very easy to see the reasons. There are two of them that he gives, and they're, they're highlighted by the word for. So you look down in your Bible at verse 15. Or, or, I'm sorry, verse 14. For, that's reason number one, on this re, for this reason you should not grieve that way. And then you look at verse 15, he gives a second reason. For, this we declare to you. Paul two good reasons why we should not grieve like those who don't have hope when our loved ones die. And so I wanna look at these with you. In verse 14, first, he says we should have hope because of Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and, and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's first reason for confidence here involves death's defeat. Paul says do not grieve because God will bring them up like he did Jesus Christ. Jesus died and rose again, our Brothers and sisters in the Lord who die will one day rise again in similar fashion. That's interesting to me that the very next book that Paul writes in his apostolic writings, it's in the canon, is 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, instead of one verse about this, he gives 58 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to expound upon this idea. Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be resurrected in his fashion. Okay, so the resurrection of Jesus provides full confidence and full solution for the Thessalonians concerning their doubts and fears. They'd lost loved ones. They didn't know what was to become of them. And so Paul says, number one, you just need to know that as Jesus rose again, so your husband Your wife, your children, your parents will arise in the the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's number one. The second reason he gives is verses 15 through 17. This is a little more complicated. Second, we should have hope because of Christ's teaching about his own return. We should have hope because of Christ's teaching about his own return. In these verses, we get the second reason why we should be confident about our deceased loved ones who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's look at verses 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord In the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. As we go through uh, this text together, Paul describes the second reason as a word that he has from the Lord. Did you see that in verse 15? And we won't take the time to go there, but I think what Paul's doing here is he's letting us know that he's aware of something that Jesus said about his return that should be encouraging to the Thessalonian believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul is talking about singleness in marriage. In that passage, he'll from time to time say, but I have something for you. I have a command for you in this area. And other times they'll say, I don't have a command, but I'm aware of something Jesus says. I have a word from Jesus or the Lord about, that, about this. And so when Paul does this in different epistles, I think what he's doing is he's saying, I am aware of something Jesus said on the topic. And in this case, I think what Jesus said will encourage you. Now, unfortunately, Paul doesn't tell us where where it is, if it's in a gospel or if it's something else that he had had been revealed to him. I think what Paul does is he summarizes it. He alludes to something Jesus said. And so this word from the Lord will bring them strong confidence and assurance. But let's actually look at our text to see what we can learn about this word from the Lord. I think the main idea of it, as summarized by Paul, is found in verse 15. This we declare to you by word from the Lord that, and here it is, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul says here clearly, those who are alive, believers in Christ, at the coming of the Lord, are at no advantage over those who have already died in Christ. Then in verses 16 and 17, Paul gives a a deeper, fuller explanation of this, and he basically gives us some word from Christ here that uh, describes what's going to happen in three sequential cosmic events. Okay, So verse 16, stage one is the Lord comes back. The first eschatological event he mentions is the coming of the Lord. I, I don't think we should miss this, and Paul emphasizes it. He puts it right at the beginning. He says, for the Lord, and then he, he adds his pronoun, himself. In case you're thinking about like some other person, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And then he gives three accompanying signs or sounds that work, will occur when Jesus comes down out of heaven. He says, there will be a shout, a voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. I want to look at these in just quick detail. First, the shout. What is the shout? And unfortunately, we, we don't have a lot about it in this text to figure it all out, but I think there are a few questions we can answer about it. First, we can answer, what is the shout? Because the word shout here, although it's only used here in the New Testament, is used in other places, and it can be helpful for us to understand what Paul is saying here. For instance, this word is used in one time in the Old Testament, in Proverbs 30 and verse 27, of locusts. Locusts have no king, yet they march orderly at one shout of command. Okay, that's the same word. And in classical Greek writing, this word functioned more like a technical military term for the command of an officer to his soldiers. And being in a church like ours, that will probably resonate with half the group. Like military term for the command of an officer to his soldiers. It was also used of a hunter's instruction to his dogs, a chariot driver's instruction to his horses, and a boat captain to his rowers. So what is this shout? I think this is a commanding shout that a superior would give to his soldiers or servants or animals. Got it? So when Jesus comes back and he descends from heaven, it will be accompanied with a shout, a commanding shout, which is why the ESV translates it, a cry of command. The second question I want to answer about this is, who is shouting? Who is shouting? Now, in our text, we don't really get that answer, but in the Gospels, I think we can. Turn back to John 5 for a moment. John 5 for a moment, and I want to just point out a few verses to you there from the words of Jesus himself. I don't know if this passage is the word from the Lord that Paul had to encourage them. I don't know. Someday in heaven we'll find out. But as Paul is summarizing what Jesus said, he says, for he will descend from heaven in the clouds, and the first sign is with a shout, a commanding shout. Well, who gives it? Look at John 5, 25. He says, Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And he, the Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so whose voice is this? I think it's probably the voice of Jesus. So we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we'll just continue working through these sounds. So the Lord himself is going to descend out of heaven into the clouds. He will give a cry of command. Then secondly, um. We will, see the, we will hear the voice of an archangel, the voice of an archangel. Now, again, we don't have much information about the archangel, who he is, what he says, we just know it's his voice. I think it's likely since archangels were given authority over other angels, it might be that the archangel responds to the commanding shout of Jesus to organize his troops and execute Jesus' plan. There's this voice of an archangel, and then finally, the Lord himself will descend at the sound of the trumpet of God. As you read end time texts, there are actually a lot of different trumpet sounds, and I just want to caution you a little bit about like connecting every one of them or anything. I think the point that Paul is making here is there will be a trumpet sound that is a clear sign or signal of Christ's return, it will grab the attention of believers in Jesus Christ. It'll be obvious. The sound of the trumpet. So the key idea in verse 16, I think the beginning of this, is that at a distinct point in the future, the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven. That is stage one. Stage two is right after that, middle verse 16. Stage two is the dead In Christ will rise. It says, and dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, well, there's some controversy about this passage who the dead in Christ are. I think it's best to see them as church age brothers and sisters who have believed in Jesus Christ, who are in the grave. And so Paul's writing to assure these people the Lord himself is going to come, and the first thing that will happen in response to that and all the sounds you hear is that church-age deceased believers will rise. Then that leads to stage three, verse 17. Uh, Then living believers will be taken up. It says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we see this last event that he describes in this passage is living believers being taken up by God to meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air. This is where I think uh, I I want to just take a moment and describe to you perhaps two main ways that people come to this text and explain where this is happening and when it occurs. Okay, and the the two main ways I want to describe to you are a post-tribulation rapture position and a pre-tribulation rapture. Some people bu- bu- put it before the tribulation. Some people put it after the tribulation. Okay, and, and so first I want to I talk about the people who say that believers in Jesus Christ will go through the tribulation period and then the Lord will return. They believe that God will catch away. This word in the text is catch away in verse 17 here could be translated snatched or in some cases raptured. So post-trib rapture position believes that the tribulation period will occur, and at the end of that, we will be snatched up or taken away. In other words, believers will go through the entire tribulation period on earth, and the Lord will return for them right before the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Now, one of the main reasons, just to be fair and honest with you, why people would take it this way is because of the word, to meet, the word meet in the text. Okay, what someone who believes in a post trib rapture will say is that that word speaks in some text of a momentary meeting with the Lord or a dignitary that results in you returning with Him to a city. So sometimes this idea in a few places brings the idea of meeting a dignitary, someone who's visiting a city and Meeting them out in the suburbs and escorting them back into the city with great pomp and excitement as they come back. And so if people hold that position, in this text, basically what they're saying is this. They're saying what's going to happen is the trumpet's going to sound, the Lord's going to come down into the clouds, and then we are going to go meet him there, and then we will come back with him to earth to start a kingdom, a millennial kingdom. Okay. And uh, honestly, the strength of that would be the word "meet," although it doesn't always have to be taken that way. Another way to describe this, and one that's in keeping with what we say in our doctrinal statement church, and what I personally believe, is a pre-tribulation rapture, that before the tribulation starts, God will snatch us away. He will take us away. Believers, both living and deceased, will be transferred to the clouds inherit their new glorified bodies and then will continue on to heaven with the Lord for seven years. And so this way of taking things is to say that the second coming has two phases. He will come and he will rapture the church and then seven years later he will return to set up a millennial kingdom for Israel for a thousand years and we will come with him. You say, that's pretty overwhelming. Well, come back tonight. I'm just going to overview end times with you. 30 minutes. One of the reasons I would think this is the best way to take this is because the words caught away or snatched away in your text is used by Paul in one other place, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And there in verses 2 and 4 in that passage, Paul talks about being caught up or snatched away up into heaven where he saw visions and revelations from Christ. Their snatching away meant he was taken up to the third heaven, the text says. The word is used only one time in Revelation, the word snatched away. In Revelation, it is speaking about a child that is snatched up to God before his throne in heaven. In other words, in the New Testament, when God is the one snatching people away, he always takes them to heaven. Now, I think it's hard for us to be dogmatic in this one specific text because Paul does not tell us if Christ takes us to heaven or if we return to earth, simply that we'll be forever with the Lord. But it seems best to see our direction continuing upward unless we're told something different. There are other very good reasons to believe that the church will not go through the tribulation period, the time of God's great wrath upon the church as well. There are a lot of New Testament texts that would tell us that we will not experience God's wrath or the day of God's great wrath as well. But again, Paul's literary point in this text is not to tell us that. And so as we go back to the text, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want to get the result of Christ's word, the end of verse 17. The result is we meet the Lord in the clouds, and so we will always be with the Lord. God will raise deceased believers and will translate living believers to the clouds to meet Jesus. And this results in us always being with Jesus. From that point on, we will never be separated from him again. And that leads one last point, and that is verse 18, and why this text is even put here by Paul in the first place. I said I have three points today. Number one, an opening declaration. Number two, a settling affirmations. And number three, some final instruction. Final instruction is very clear. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In this verse, Paul uses a strong word of conclusion, therefore. This is like a classic Pauline word. He only pulls it out certain times And it's when he's drawing out an important conclusion. Paul's conclusion in this passage is that these words, this text, should be used to encourage brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I think many believers miss out on the main point of this passage for a multitude of reasons. But for sake of time, I'll just say I think that this text is put here to remind us that the return of the Lord and an understanding of these things is instrumental. It's, it's so important and necessary for followers of Jesus Christ. There was a time in the history of our country where there was an overwhelming zeal, many people, for the study of prophecy and the end times. That came, I think, especially in the late 1800s and early 1900s in our churches. What was happening just previous to that is there was a, a, a very dark time in the history of our country where seminaries and denominations were abandoning belief in the inerrancy of Scripture and the fact that you could be saved only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. you imagine churches and seminaries teaching there are other ways or there are errors in this book? Well, that's what was going on. And so there was a large work of God that he did primarily among lay people in churches who believed, they had this impulse. I shouldn't believe what the seminary professors are saying about there being errors in the book. I know I can trust what it says." And so what they started doing in the early 1900s is they started having Bible conferences all around North America, like the Niagara Conference. And in these conferences, often they turn to a study not only of Scripture, but a study of what Jesus said and what Paul says about the end of time, prophecy conferences. Now, in our culture and world today, we aren't really into studying it. I think there are some reasons for that. I think we've been burned by people setting dates and acting really confident about stuff that they shouldn't. But shouldn't we think and talk a lot about the return of Jesus Christ, our Savior? I think of just, let me just give you a few New Testament authors and what they said about this. I mean, we read one already, Simon Peter. What did he say? He said, the end of all things is at hand. I mean, if I stood up here today and I zealously proclaimed that message, the end of all things is near, I might be driven out of this church. I was like a crazed lunatic. Yet this was an impulse for Simon Peter. Peter. He believed that the end could happen at any time and that it was fast approaching. 1 Peter 4 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober, self controlled, sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Listen to him in another verse. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. What's he saying? He said, there's coming a day in the future where Jesus will be revealed. And what I want you to do is set your hope fully on that, on him. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29 says this, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Doesn't sound like much preaching today. From now on, let those who weep mourn as though they are not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they're not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. It's like in process. This is already occurring from the perspective of Paul the Apostle. Think of the words of the beloved disciple John in 1 John 2 and 3. He says this, he says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame it is coming. He says later, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Listen to what John the beloved disciple says. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as Jesus is pure. He says, we have a future hope that one day Jesus is going to come back and we're going to be like him. And everyone who has that hope purifies him today as Jesus himself is pure. Listen to the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 9 and verse 28 says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Men and women, these men, these scriptural authors, did not know exactly when Jesus would come back. The Holy Spirit did not reveal that to them. Only the Father knows that. But their impulse was right. He might come back at any time, and it changed the way that they lived. So, do you, you believe that Jesus is coming back soon? Do you sense the shortness of time And does your bright future change your present existence? May his promises here, this word from the Lord. Encourage you to live daily in light of your future. There's a great English social reformer of the 19th century, mid-19th century, his name was Lord Shaftesbury. It's reported that he said this on one occasion. He said, I do not think that in the last 40 years, I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of the Lord's return. Now, he might be exaggerating there. But his testimony is, I can't think of one conscious hour that I have lived without thinking about the Lord's return. And it motivated him as a public leader in Great Britain. How about you? May his promises, this word of the Lord, encourage you to live daily in light of your future. And may his promises here in this text encourage and comfort you if you have lost a loved one, a believer, to death recently. Do you know what happened one second after he or she died. That's even overstating it. Well, his soul left his physical body and he awoke self aware in the presence of Jesus. He might possess some sort of temporary body or now, but regardless, his soul is in the presence of Jesus. And one day soon, when Jesus comes back, God won't forget about his or her body. No. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, he or she will be raised, and you will meet Christ together with him or her in the clouds. Our dead loved ones are not disadvantaged. We will see them then and enjoy Christ forevermore. Amen, brother. So I go through this text, it, it reminds me of a song I used to sing when I was a little boy. I grew up in a country church in Clymer, Pennsylvania. And uh, we sang this song about this great reunion we'll experience in heaven. I'm going to close with these words. There is going to be a meeting in the air, and the sweet, sweet, by and by. I'm going to meet you, greet you over there, and at home beyond the sky. Such singing you will hear, never heard by mortal ear. T'will be glorious, I do declare. And God's own Son will be the leading one at that meeting in the air. Be encouraged, men and women. There's reason for hope. Keep your eyes open. Keep them fixed. Keep them looking for Christ who could come at any moment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And how it says that there's coming a day, there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will break through the clouds We'll meet him in the air, and we'll be forever with him. Lord, I pray that you would help us live in light of this. I've got two prayer requests for our church today, Father. One, that you would help us be more conscious of the anytime return of the Lord, the rapture of the church. And then number two, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who've experienced overwhelming loss in the last few months or years. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would give them eyes to understand and to believe this text. That their husband, wife, spouse, parent who knew Jesus is now with you, enjoying you. And that one day in the future, their bodies will arise and that we will join with them in the clouds to meet you in the air. Lord, might this be encouragement as intended by the Apostle Paul for your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.